Yeah, I hope you'll do that. Um, it's so good to be with you guys inside. We got our folks out back. I think we may even have a, a shot of them. Welcome, everybody out there. So good to see you guys. And then the folks that are watching online, please take advantage of the Life Group opportunity. You can sign up here live out back in, a, in the foyer there, or you can go online and, and sign up with John. Hey, uh, just want to let you know, if you're new here, for I think it's been three or four years, we've been talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we began by defining a disciple as someone who lives, loves, and leads like Jesus. And so we wanted to begin to, to take a look at what, what does that look like? How about the earliest disciples? And so we spent a long time going through the gospel of Mark. We went verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. And then um, that led us naturally into the book of Acts so that we could see how these disciples began to make disciples. And they did that primarily by going and, and starting new churches, planting new churches really around the world. And the primary church planter was the Apostle Paul. And so we followed his journey as he did that. And then we took a look at one of the letters that he wrote to the very first church that he planted in Philippi. And we spent some time with that. Well, um, after we finished that, we, we realized we need to be more intentional about really reaching out to folks, seeing some folks that, that we really care about, that we would like to see grow closer or come closer to Jesus. And um, we use this method. We came up, we didn't come up, but we stole it. We don't, there's nothing original around here. And so we have this, this card that we did create, and it begins with a Frank list. And Frank stands for friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, and coworkers. And we were encouraging everybody, just start writing some folks down that God's put on your heart that you'd love to see come closer to him. And then all you have to do is bless them. And you look here, and so the B stands for begin with prayer. Then the L is listen with care. E is one of my favorite things, eat together. And then the S is serve with love. And then finally, the, the last S is share your story in Jesus' story. So it's really simple. You just look to bless those around you. So we talked about that for a few weeks, and that led us right up to Easter, where we had the uh, unique opportunity to hear from Peter and John about that, their firsthand encounters with Jesus, how he... Um, lived his life about his death and specifically about his resurrection, and that was at Easter time. And then um, it, it just naturally flowed to see how Jesus transitioned from his ministry here physically on earth to where he handed that ministry off to the Holy Spirit and to us, to mankind. And we took a look at the role that the Holy Spirit plays, that, that this miracle takes place. When you truly commit your life to following Jesus, his spirit comes and lives within you, and, and it's an amazing, powerful thing, and he gives us power, and he will guide us through life. And so we spent a number of weeks looking at that. That brought us right up to July, and then um, we looked at things like living free and biblical truth. We also talked about running for the prize, and then last week, uh, we talked about the centrality of the church. What we're going to do now is begin a new series and, and I thought it would be good to go back into the Old Testament. We've spent a lot of time in the New Testament, but there's some richness in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament is always pointing forward to Jesus, always pointing forward to Jesus. And so we want to go back and, and take a look at Joshua, the book of Joshua. And I think it's important 
Um, when we were starting out, there was a, a group of us that met in the basement of Church of the Holy Spirit um, some 19 years ago, and we were beginning to contemplate what it might look like to start a new church, which has come to be known as Orchard Hills. And so that's who we are today. And the first thing we studied was Joshua, was Joshua. And I think it's fitting to start um, taking another look at Joshua because I think the church um, is in a new season. And, and I don't just mean Orchard Hills is entering into a new season, but I think the church in general worldwide is entering into a new season. There are a lot of changes that we're going to have to navigate. And there's a lot of old things that we're going to have to continue to navigate as well. So I think it's uh, an excellent opportunity to spend some time looking at Joshua as he led the Israelites into the promised land of God. Now to do this, um, we're going to cover one chapter each week, so an entire chapter. So we're not going to be able to go as in-depth as I'd like to, so you'll get a little overview. So this would be encouraging for you to maybe look a little deeper on your own. Um, But before we start doing that, I think it's always important to put things in its proper context. And so what I want to do this morning is cover the first five books of the Bible with you. All five. One moment. Get comfortable. Because here we go. So we're going to start out in Genesis. And we're actually, I'll skip a part of it. So we'll start in Genesis chapter 12. And it begins with a promise. It, It begins with... God making a promise to a man by the name of Abraham. And you may remember Abraham before he was even Abraham. Before that, his name was Abram, and his wife was Sarai. And they were an interesting story. She couldn't have children. Um, They were barren. But when Abram at the time was 75 and Sarai was 65, God came to Abraham. He was going to change his name from Abram to Abraham. And he came to him, and he made him a promise. And he said, I am going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations in the world. And that blessing is found in a promise. And the promise is two parts. One has to do with land, and the other has to do with descendants. And I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. Well, he laughed about that, wouldn't you? You're like, really? 75, 65, I mean, nothing up to this point. So, but despite Abram, Sarai being skeptical, God was faithful. Now, immediately they they stepped out in faith and and Abraham just rallied his family and they began to, to follow God to a land they weren't sure of and he took them to this promised land and it didn't take very long for them to enter into the promised land. But it took a long time for the second part of that promise to be realized. 25 years went by before they were able to conceive a child, a son by the name of Isaac. Now, I don't have time to go into all the 25 years, but I'll tell you, they weren't unlike us. They started to have their doubts, and they know, I know God promised me children, but it's not coming about right now. And we probably need to help God out. Like, you ever been there? Like, God, let me help you. Well, it didn't turn out so well, and they made a lot of bad choices, and we're still paying the consequences of some of those bad choices today. Anyhow, Isaac is a great story if you want to go read that. He's got a great love story in there. You know, the Bible is rich. It has everything in there. So there's this this story of love and deceit 
and yet faithfulness and steadfastness. That's what we see with Isaac. And Isaac ended up having two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau was the firstborn, so he was the heir to everything. But uh, <laughs> through a, a series of, of events and, and just one bad choice, he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of soup. All right? We all look back. How foolish are you? But anyhow, that's how it went down. You can read about it. So Jacob then becomes the father of 12 sons, and they become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Jacob makes a major blunder because he has a favorite, as we all do, right? Parents, you're not supposed to, but you got a favorite. Let me just advise you, keep that to yourself, all right? Like, don't make it known if you do have a favorite. And Jacob blew it. Like, he, he made it known that Joseph was his favorite, and, and he just really blew it when he gave him this really fancy coat of many colors, so he stood out. Well, how do you think that went over with the brothers? Not so good. Not so good. And they were not happy about that. And to make matters even worse, guess what Joseph did? Well, he had this dream. And instead of keeping the dream to himself, he decided that he would share the dream with his brothers. And in this dream, all of his brothers were bowed down before him. So he told them that. Well, that was a fatal mistake. And uh, they decided, we're just going to kill this little brother and uh, so they were out hunting one day, and, and they were ready to kill him. There was this big hole or cistern, and so they threw their brother in there, and they're just contemplating, how are we going to kill him? But then again, this, this, these um, Midianite merchants were making their way by, and they decided, hey, you know what? What if we just sell them into slavery? We'll make some cash off the deal. We won't have to kill them, so we won't have the guilt of all that. And so that's what they did, and they sold their little brother into slavery. Well, what were they going to tell dad? His favorite son is gone. So they took that coat before they let him go, and uh, they put some blood on it, and they told their dad that he was eaten by a wild animal. Well, dad was distraught, but it is what it is. Now, the Midianites are making their way to Egypt, and they decide, you know, we can make a quick buck off of this guy, and they sold him to this guy named Potiphar, who was one of the, the leading authorities in Pharaoh, so the king of Egypt's um, you know, council. Now, things are not going well for poor Joseph. I, I mean, he's a good guy. He remains faithful to God, but things are just not going his way. And eventually, he even ends up in prison, and he's forgotten about. And you, I mean, imagine you're there. When you start questioning, like, where is God? Is God even real? But not, not Joseph. He remained faithful. And then one day, Pharaoh has a dream. And he asks his closest advisors to help interpret the dream, but none of them can. And so one of the guys tells him about Joseph, who he had met in prison. And uh, so Pharaoh summons Joseph to him, and he tells Joseph his dream. And God gives Joseph the ability to interpret it. And what he tells Pharaoh is that um, your dream is, is from God, and, and what he's revealing is that there's going to be a great famine in the land. And what you need to do is begin to prepare for that famine. And so Pharaoh is, is so encouraged that he takes Joseph, who was in prison, and he elevates him, this guy that was a slave, to the second highest position in all the land. And Joseph begins to gather grain 
and the other essentials. And sure enough, guess what happens? There's a famine in the land. But they have enough grain in the essentials to survive. And not only that, but enough to share with others. Well, Joseph's family, um, they were affected by the famine as well, and they weren't doing so well. So Jacob, his father, decided to send the other brothers to Egypt and to bring money and to buy the grain and, and the things that they needed to survive. And so they did that. And so they come, and guess who they have to report to? It's Joseph. Only they don't recognize Joseph. They think he's pretty much dead and gone by now. And they end up, what? Bowing down before him, just like he had predicted in his dream. But they don't know it's Joseph. And, and he's still a little ticked off, you know, about being thrown in the cistern, sold into slavery and stuff. So he, see, he decides, I'm just going to have a little fun with him. And that's a great story, too. You can go read that. But in the end, he gives them all the grain that they need. But he doesn't stop there. He cares so much for his family that he relocates them to Egypt. And when they come to Egypt, they begin to thrive. And they begin to grow and expand. And, and that promise that Abraham had for them, that they were going to become as many as the stars in the sky, you can start to see it playing out. Now, this goes on for, for years and years to the point um, where generations have died off. So Joseph is, is long gone. All the brothers are long gone. But they continue to grow, the Israelites. Now the new Pharaoh is a little intimidated by that because there are just so many of them. And he's afraid if they rise up, they can certainly take over the land. So he decides to strike first. And he enslaves them all. He makes all the Israelites slaves. Well, they continue to flourish and multiply, despite the hardship. So he makes it even more difficult, and still they grow and flourish. Um, then he does something horrific, and he decides to uh, kill the firstborn of every household, to kill the firstborn son of every household. And he tells them, so they had um, like midwives, Egyptian midwives, and he tells them to throw all the firstborn male babies into the Nile River and kill them. And that's what they do. But there's one little baby that is spared, a little baby boy, and we come to know him by the name of Moses. And he was placed in a basket and put in the river, but he was found by Pharaoh's daughter, and she brings him up as her own. And so this little Hebrew or Israelite baby boy is growing up in Pharaoh's household, and he becomes a prince of Egypt. Well, somewhere along the line, he learns about his heritage. And one day, he's out, and he sees that an Egyptian is mistreating one of his, his Israelite brothers, so to speak. And so he intervenes, and he actually ends up killing the Egyptian. Well, this is not a good scene. So he takes off running. He's fleeing for his life. Now, 430 years have gone by. The Israelites have been in Egypt for 430 years, and times are getting tougher and tougher. And finally, they begin to cry out to God to rescue them, to deliver them. 
And God hears their prayers. And he remembers the promise that he made to Abraham. They need a deliverer. He chooses Moses. And he speaks to Moses in the most odd way through a burning bush. Now, Moses was a reluctant leader. He wasn't the best public speaker. He wasn't terribly confident or super dynamic. But he was faithful. And God said, Moses, don't worry. I've got this. I've got you. And and I'm going to surround you with some other people. So I'm going to raise up your brother Aaron and your sister Miriam. And they're going to come alongside and help you do this. Now, he spoke to Moses and he said, I want you to take your brother Aaron and I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to go face Pharaoh. And when you see Pharaoh, tell him this, let my people go, let my people go. So he does that and he tells Pharaoh, God said, let my people go. Well, Pharaoh wasn't overly impressed with Moses or Aaron or even his God. And his response was simply, no. Well, God said, all right, I'm going to bring a plague upon you to get your attention here. And so he turns the Nile River into blood. Well, that did get Pharaoh's attention, but it still didn't change his heart or his mind, and he wouldn't let the people go. So God said, all right, I'll send another plague. This time he sends frogs. I guess Pharaoh didn't like frogs because after the frog fiasco, he's like, all right, I'll let your people go. I'll let them go. And then he changes his mind. So God's like, all right, I'll send another plague and another plague. And it goes on and on. Same kind of pattern. Pharaoh says, all right, I'll let him go. And then he changes his mind. They get to the 10th plague. And God says, all right, Pharaoh, here's the deal. I'm going to kill the firstborn male of every household in Egypt if you don't let my people go. Well, what was Pharaoh's response? No, I'm not going to do it. And so, does this sound familiar to what Pharaoh had done years before? Killing the firstborn son? There was a cost to sin. And so, God had a plan to spare the Israelites, though. And he told them to do this. He said, if you will take an innocent lamb, and you will kill the lamb and take the blood of the lamb and smear it over the doorframe of your house. When the angel of death comes at night, he will see the blood of the lamb, and he will pass over your house and spare you. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happened. And the next morning, there was mourning and weeping. And and even Pharaoh's son, his firstborn son, died. But not the Israelites. Not their children. They were spared. And so Pharaoh is so overwhelmed with grief, he just says, get out. Just go. Go and and take whatever you want with you. And and so they respond, and they gather up their things, and they get out of town as quickly as they can. Now, here's the deal. They have multiplied so much that there's over 2 million of them. So try and imagine gathering up 2 million people and getting out of town together. Plus, they got their stuff, and they got their animals and all that. So it's, it's hard to move that train. But there they go, and they're leaving town. But grief soon turns to anger on Pharaoh's part. So what does he do? He changes his mind yet again. And he gathers his army, 
and he sends them in pursuit of the Israelites. He's going to wipe them out. He's got all these chariots. I mean, it, it must be an intimidating scene. And the Israelites have made their way to the Red Sea, and they think they're trapped. What are they going to do now? Like, they can't go forward because they've got this huge body of water, and they look back, and they, they can't go back because Pharaoh's going to kill them. The whole army is after them. What would they do? And then they start crying out, and, and they say this. They're like, we were better off as slaves in Egypt. We were better off as slaves in Egypt. So they have just given up on God. Well, God had been leading them in the form of a cloud, and he went before them and, and guided and directed them. Well, he had a plan. And so what he did is he moved his presence from before them, and he moved behind them. And he created like a cloud and a screen that shielded the Israelites from the approaching army. Well, they still had a predicament because they had to get across the water, and God said, Moses, I want you to raise up your staff, and I want you to part the water. And that's exactly what he did. And, and so it was like two walls of water, and then there's this dry land, and all the Israelites then crossed through the Red Sea on dry land until they got to the other side to safety. And then God moved his presence. He removed that cloud so that the, the um, Egyptian army was free to pursue and as they pursued the Israelites, they went into the Red Sea. And then he told Moses, all right, release the water. And he did. And shoo, they all drowned. And their bodies were washed up on the shore. And the Israelites saw once again that God is their deliverer. He will provide for them and he will protect them. Well, you would think everything would be good at this point, right? Like that's couple of miraculous things, a number of miraculous things that God has done on their behalf. Certainly they will trust him, but they still grumble and they still complain. And so they're going through the wilderness. God's still leading them and, and they're like, but we're hungry. All right. Well, we don't have anything to eat. Okay. So God says, I'll, I'll give you bread from heaven. Every morning when you get up, there'll be bread waiting on you. And so they start getting the bread from heaven. Then they're like, but we're thirsty. You know, we're thirsty. And he said, all right, yeah, I'll provide water. And, and he provides water out of a rock. And then they're like, well, we're getting tired of bread. Can we get a little meat, God? He's like, all right, I'll send you some quail. Do you like quail? We'll send quail, right? And like he's providing for their every need. Are they happy? Are they satisfied? No, they're still not content. Well, they end up camping at the base of Mount Sinai. So if you look at the Sinai Peninsula today, you know, and they're still in Egypt down there, and they set up camp, and then God um, shows his presence in the form of a storm. And he calls Moses to meet with him. So Moses goes up on the mountain and meets with God. And it's during this encounter that God actually gives him what we know as the Ten Commandments. And what they were were instructions for how to live a good and godly life. This would be your best life if you follow these commandments. And the first part of them had everything to do with putting God first in your life. And the second part of the commandments had everything to do with putting others second. So the idea is put God first, others second. When you do that, life goes better for you. 
So he gives these commands, and then there are a number of other commands as well. You can read about those. Go to Exodus verse, or chapter 21 through 23, and you can see all of those. And so Moses makes his way down off the, the mountain, and he presents these to the people, and they're excited. And they're all of one mind, one accord, one voice. And this is what they say. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What they were doing is entering into a covenant with God. They were covenanting with God, saying, we will do whatever you say. We promise. And we're willing to die for it. If we, die, if we break this covenant, may you put us to death. That's how powerful a covenant is. Well, God then calls Moses back up on to the mountain, and he's got this plan. God wants to dwell with his people, and he gives them these really specific guidelines for building this tent or tabernacle, very detailed. And God wants to, to dwell in the center of this community, and he wants to be in relationship with them. Now, Moses was gone a long time. It was 40 days and 40 nights that he was up on that mountain. And the people started to grow kind of restless. And guess what they did? Something that is unthinkable. They have just entered into this covenant, right? We will do whatever you say. And then they call Aaron. Remember, Aaron is Moses' brother. And they say, Aaron, we want you to make us an idol so that we can worship it. And Aaron says, okay. And he gathers up the gold from people, and he melts it down, and he, and he melts it into the form of, of a golden calf, of all things. And he says, here's your God. And they begin to worship this golden calf. And if that weren't bad enough, you know what else they did? They began to give credit for their deliverance from Egypt and slavery to the calf. Well, that ticked God off. Uh, he was not happy, to say the least. And he decided, you know, I should just wipe these people out. Like, I should just burn them up and start afresh. But then he remembered the promise that he made to Abraham. And God always keeps his promises. And so he didn't wipe them out. Um, and he still sent Moses back down, and, and Moses led them to build the tabernacle but now the relationship was strained. They didn't have this intimate relationship with God. They couldn't just freely come into his presence. Not even the priest could freely come into his presence. Not even Moses himself. So there was this distance. Even though God was present, there was this distance between them relationally. And so that's what was going on. So that ends up, that's really the end of uh, Exodus. And then begins Leviticus. Leviticus describes um, how the Israelites were to stay separate from the other peoples around them and how they were to remain pure, to be fully devoted to God. And there was um, really a, a very detailed description of how they were to atone for their sins through this sacrificial system, this sacrificial system. And so a lot of people get to Leviticus and you get bogged down. And you're like, oh my goodness, like it's all these laws and rules and I don't understand. But that's the gist of it. God's calling his people to be separate, to be pure, and he's providing a system to atone for your sins. That's Leviticus. Then we get into Numbers. Numbers sounds horribly boring, 
right? Unless you're an accountant, you're probably not all excited when you see the, the book of Numbers. But it's not. It's not. It's really exciting because it, it does detail a lot of numbers. That, you know, they take some censuses in there to see how many people and, and how they continue to grow and flourish. But it's really an account of this adventure of the Israelites to the promised land. And so that's laid out for us. Um, They've been, so if you're in the book of Numbers, it begins where they're still at Mount Sinai. They were there for a year. They were camped there. And now it's time to go to the promised land. It was only a two-week journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land. If you know anything about the story, it ends up taking them 40 years. 40 years. What should have taken two weeks took 40 years. And, and here's why. Three days into the journey, the people are grumbling and complaining yet again. Not only are the people grumbling and complaining, but Aaron and um, Miriam, the brother and sister of Moses, they're bad-mouthing him to everybody else around. I mean, it's ridiculous what's going on. But yet, God continues to lead them. They come into this wilderness called Paran. The wilderness called Paran. And it's just right on the border of the promised land. And Moses gathers up one representative from every tribe. So there are these 12 men, and, and they're like a spy detail, right? And they're to, to be real stealth and go into the land and spy it out and then report back. Because remember, God promised, this is your land. I'm going to deliver this land to you. And so they go, and they come back. And two guys, their names were Joshua and Caleb. They come back, and they're like, I got to tell you, it is amazing. I mean, it is beautiful. It is a rich land that God has prepared for us. You know, we need to go in and take hold of it. But there were 10 others who were like, no way. Like, did you see the size of the enemy there? Like, they're going to wipe us out. If we go in there, we're going to be annihilated. We shouldn't do it. Not only that, but then they raised up their own leader to lead, you know, this... Um, Really, it was uh, to, to lead this rebellion against God and, and to say, no, we want to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. We think it would be better to become slaves again in Egypt than to go in and face the enemies in this promised land. And so, guess what God did? He let them have what they wanted. He said, all right, I won't send you in there, but I'm still going to protect you and not send you to be slaves in Egypt, what's going to happen is you're just going to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years because that's about how long it's going to take for all of you adults to die off. All right? You're going to wander until all of you adults are dead because you are not going to enter into the promised land. Every one of you is going to die before then except two guys, Joshua and Caleb, because these two men came back and they took a stand and they said what was right and true, and they trusted me. And so that's what happens. And so they wander in the wilderness until they all start dying off. Well, um, man, you can read about those 40 years. It was full of grumbling and complaining and bad choices and, and the repercussions of all that. But finally, after that time, they end up in, in this land of Moab. Moab. And so... 
Um, they're camped, and now they're right on the brink again of going into the promised land, and they're camped in this valley. But the king of Moab, he's intimidated. He's like, all these people, millions of people have entered my land, and I'm afraid they're going to attack me. So he calls upon this, this priest or this prophet of God, and his name was Balaam. And he calls Balaam over, and he says, look, I want you to pronounce a curse on these people. And so they go up on this mountain ridge, and um, they have this vantage point. They can look down over all the Israelites and camp there. And he says, now I want you to, to curse them. But he, he's a man of God, and, and as he's praying, God says, no, I want you to bless them. And so he ends up blessing them. Well, King Moab's like, what? Like, I just paid you and brought you here to curse them, and now you bless them. He goes, I'm sorry, you know, that's just what God told me to do. I can't do something God doesn't say to do. He's like, well, let's go over here and try it again. And he does the second time. He blesses them instead of curses them. Well, let's go to another vantage point. Third time, blesses instead of curses. Let's go to a fourth vantage point. Again, he blesses them instead of curses them. And not only that, but it's this time that he, he prophesies. He said, but you know what? Out of these people, one day is going to come a Savior, a Messiah, who is going to set the world free from their sin. He's going to be a blessing to all nations. Do you know who he's referring to? Jesus. He was already predicting the coming of Jesus. And so what we see transpiring there is really God blessing this obstinate people who really d deserved probably to be cursed, but he blessed them instead. He blessed them instead. And so that um, leads us to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy can be another challenging book to read through, but, but look at it like this. It, it's really a pep talk. You know, so the coach has gathered the team together and they're getting ready to go out on the field and do battle, right? And the coach is like, all right, guys, we can do this. And he's saying, all right, here are the things, remember that we've taught you? You know, these are the things you need to do, and don't do these other things, all right? It will not go well if you do these other things. And so he's getting them fired up. And then he gives them these really important instructions. It's called the Shema, the Shema. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter um, 6, verses 4 through 9. Listen to this. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your homes and on your gates. He's saying, keep this ever before you. Love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment of all? Because there were thousands of commands out there more than just the ten commandments you remember what he said the greatest commandment was love the lord your god with all your heart all your soul all your strength and then he added another one remember that and love your neighbor as yourself remember the ten commandments all about loving god loving others see how it's all consistent 
That was to be impressed on the people. And then um, the final chapter is of Moses making his way up onto the mountain. He's overlooking the promised land. He sees the land of promise, but he never gets to enter into it. And he dies on that mountain. Brings us to the beginning of Joshua and a new journey for the people of Israel. And I think it's going to be a fun journey to take together. I think we're going to learn some exciting things. Some of the main themes are um, like the secret to success we'll see in there. You'll see things like putting our faith into action. We'll learn about the importance uh, of God's guidance in our lives. And uh, we'll learn characteristics of strong, godly leadership. Those are just some of the things that we're going to learn as we go through the book of Joshua. But for today, here's, here's what I, I want you to think about. Where are you on this journey? So we're all on a journey with God. Where are you on this journey with God? Are, are you maybe just beginning? If so, that's great. Let me just tell you, this is something I recommend. Get a children's Bible. I've said this many times. We've got a couple back there. Um, read this. It gives you a quick, easy um, just framework and, and big picture of the story of God. No matter how old you are, read the children's Bible. This is Sutton's. I took it from, from his office. You know, like this is his primary study Bible, I think. But the, uh, like, there's no shame in reading a children's Bible. Read it, get the big picture, and then you can go deeper after that. Um, do that. Remember, you got to understand, it, it's, we're all part of God's story. So where are you in the journey? Are you just beginning? Maybe you're somewhere down the line. Maybe you've been following after God, and you're like, and this has not turned out like I thought. Like, I thought it was supposed to be all, you know, sweet and fun and good, and no bad things would happen to me after I did this, and it has not been like that. Maybe you're there. That's okay. Um, maybe you're on the journey, you're like, you're just grumbling and complaining. You know, maybe you're just sort of miserable. Hey, that's okay, too. Maybe you're, you're just trusting, and you're like, God, I don't understand everything that's going on, but, but I trust you. Wherever you are on the journey, remember that he's got these promises for us, and those promises never change. Even though our circumstances may be different, the promises of God never change. And he has this promised land that we often call heaven, awaiting those of us who are faithful followers of Jesus. So where are you on the journey? And remember that God is always faithful. Even when we are not faithful, God is faithful, and he will keep his promises. Even though years may go by, and you may be wondering, God, have you forgotten me? Just like Sarah and Abraham, God is faithful. He keeps his promises. And then the last thing is this. Blessings follow obedience. Blessings follow obedience. Don't expect God's blessings unless you're walking in obedience to him. Blessings follow obedience. Let's pray. Whew, Lord, that was a lot. I mean, I, I think I deserve a prize, Lord. Just uh, like that's five chapters, and in, 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 I don't know, Sutton will tell me later. 
probably 30-some minutes. But uh, it, was, it was a lot to cover. And, and I thank you that your story is so rich, and I don't do it justice when I share it that quickly. But I pray that it would inspire others to go deeper and maybe to get a children's Bible and, and read through it, um, to get a, a, another Bible and to go in deeper uh, detail and, and just dig deeper into your Word because it's so rich and good and full um, Lord, we do pray that, that we would all enter into this journey together, and we would be there to encourage, not to grumble and complain with one another, but to encourage and inspire one another. We thank you for your love, your grace, your forgiveness, and your goodness. Lord, make us into your people. Thank you that we get to experience the promise and the blessings that you gave to Abraham through Jesus Christ, and we pray it all in his name. Amen.